0: Welcome to Culture Plan B. I'm David Jubb and this is the third episode of Culture Plan B in which I will not be interviewing the artistic directors of our national institutions about what the pandemic means for their organisation. Instead, Culture Plan B will be meeting with artists and communities who create culture outside big cultural institutions, like most people do. Today, I'm very lucky to be having a conversation with Anisa Moradadi, who I will be meeting properly for the very first time. Anissa founded Birmingham-based Beat Freaks in 2013 and her generous leadership of that company has inspired thousands of people in Birmingham and beyond, including me. And I want to hear more about her work and what she's thinking about the future of funding and support for arts and creativity. Especially now, the government has set out a rescue package which is intended to protect, and I quote the Secretary of State for Culture, the crown jewels of the cultural sector. It feels more important than ever to hear from independent artists and communities about what they think should happen next. And I'm especially excited to be championing the work of independent artists and communities, having recently been attacked in the Daily Telegraph for having, I quote, a dangerous disregard for our national institutions and of having, again I quote, a nebulous strategy. Apparently, and once more I quote the Daily Telegraph, by focusing on groups whose virtue is deemed to be in their marginality, we are in danger of neglecting the root and branch of our broader common culture. This telegraph attack is partly in response to my call on Radio 4's front row for a more inclusive future in terms of the way culture is funded. The telegraph attacked me. I feel like I have truly arrived somewhere in my life to be attacked by the Daily Telegraph. Now I know I'm really onto something, because let's remember that it is independent artists and communities who are responsible for the big leaps forward in contemporary culture. From spoken word to co-created performance to grime culture, yes it's true that new artistic movements of our time have not been cooked up in the strategic planning meetings of the cultural institutions who are supposed to represent our common culture. Our common culture is in fact, take note, Daily Telegraph, created by and owned by independent artists and communities. It's just that you wouldn't think that if you don't get out much. If you have an idea for someone to feature in one of these podcasts, or you want to create your own episode of Culture Plan B, then just get in touch with us at cultureplanb at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy hearing from the amazing Anissa. Don't tell me- don't tell me how to fix, don't tell me
1: how
0: to feel Don't tell me how to do, don't tell me how to fix. Don't tell me
1: how to be, don't tell me how to think It will be okay, if we agree, if we It will be okay
0: So hello, Anissa, how are you today?
1: Yeah, I'm feeling good actually. I'm, I'm good. Where are you? So I'm in Birmingham. Yeah. I am. I've actually snuck into our office this morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is that your office? It looks really nice. Yeah. It looks very cool. Yeah,
1: kind of. We went New, oh. New York loft vibe in the centre of Birmingham. Great.
0: That is an extra treat for me for not having seen your work. I feel like I'm in the Beat Freaks HQ. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> nice one. Well, look, you set up Beat Freaks, I think, about seven years ago. Yeah. Overall, i describe it as a network of young creative people who offer support to each Mm -hmm. other. You may want to describe it differently, but it's given rise to kind of an incredible array of ventures over the years. And as I've been finding out more, I think one of the things that seems to come across really strongly is that there's always a generosity about the way that Beat Freak supports and nurtures other people's Mm -hmm. ideas which I think is all too rare in the cultural sector. So just to give people a bit of a flavour of your work since 2013, so there's Poetry Jam, which has started and opened its doors on the first Thursday of every month. There's BAIT, which stands for Birmingham Artivists in Training. There's Southside Producers, which offers practical experience in producers. There's Don't Settle, which supports young people of colour to reimagine the voice of heritage in Birmingham and the black country. And as well as these and many other development programmes and many more... Beat Freaks is also involved in debates around national policy, as illustrated by your recent report, the Taking the Temperature report, which looked at the impact of coronavirus for young people. And it, it feels to me from the research I've done that the structure and focus and of the company is restless and ever-changing, responding to the current passions of you and the young people that you work with. And yet there's a sort of ever-present set of Values and principles at the heart of that, and it would be great to talk more about that. It feels like you're always seeking to ensure young people have networks, have agency, are able to write their own stories, sort of changing the world conversation by conversation. And I've always wanted to meet you, Anita, because I feel like you offer a different kind of leadership. You know, I've heard you speak, um, usually digitally, but on several occasions, and you just give off this sort of palpable sense of generosity and kindness. And that just is something that doesn't often come across through cultural leaders. But maybe we should just start by, you could describe a bit more about Beat Freak's work. And I suppose I'd particularly be interested to hear about it from a sort of young person's perspective, what you, somebody, maybe somebody's journey through Beat Freaks. It'd be great to hear more about the company's work.
1: Yeah, so like Beat Freaks has been on a big journey since 2013. (laughs) And, you know, we're still right in the thick of that story. It's still developing. And, you know, a a pandemic will do that to you as well. It will (laughs) add some new chapters in there. Um, The way that I see Beat Freaks is as an engagement and insight agency Um, powered by a community of young creatives. I take time to say that because I think the journey that we've been on is when I was the young person at 23, setting up Beat Freaks to heal things that I saw in my city and to heal things that I'd experienced in my life and to be a part of bringing together institutions and young people because i could see and feel this divide between them like i hung out with kind of you know lawyers and accountants through part through parts of my work and they were saying where are young people we need to speak to these young people because we know that they're really important like they were a different species and then i'd kind of hang out (laughs) with these poets and these dancers you know my background was in dance and i'd hang out with all these young creative people who would Be literally putting the world to rights they were saying we're not waiting to be asked we're just going to do it and actually if you do if people Mm. do ask they don't care anyway so I was feeling like okay hang on this is here this is here I could feel this like institutional divide between Mm. between kind of people that ran the city and the people that kind of yeah inherited the city because I think it's really relevant that we're talking about kind of institutions and we are already on our own journey with that when I was the young person trying to fix something I was a part of that young community of creatives it's now understanding you know I've I've just had my 30th birthday um we've joined Thank you very much. And uh, We've just joined as part of, you know, Arts Council's MPO. We've got like an office, like we've got, you know, a yeah. team. We employ people that like, you know, people go are going off and having kids. And mm. I think it's so important to stop and to say that, that because I think for so often we forget to position ourselves within power and understand the power that we have. And, yeah. and kind of how we play into that institutional kind of landscape. So essentially how we work is, is, is as an engagement and insight agency that's really powered by a community of, of, of young creatives. And what we're really interested in doing is how do we connect you know, brands, government funders, institutions with young people so that together they influence how the world works. And essentially that what underpins that is, I really care about young people getting their share of power and so we're really interested in how do we redefine how we conceptualize power we're not just interested in young people getting a bit of corrupt power um, yeah, or being yeah. a part of a system that you know will never that they'll only ever be able to just assimilate into so we're really interested in yeah, kind of how young people can get the influence that they deserve and we do that through essentially helping them to tell stories about themselves and the things that they care about. And our kind of theory, if you like, is the more stories we can kind of get out there and tell and empower, then the more we can shift the narrative. And I think if we shift enough narratives, we can change the way that systems are seen and perceived. And that's kind of our entry into systems change.
0: It's always struck me that this is really weird that uh, and I catch myself doing this and I caught myself doing it when I used to work at Battersea. And there is a moment where institutions start to talk about young people as if they are a different Mm -hmm. species, as if also that we weren't all young people. (laughs) Right. And even you can see it, particularly it becomes so clear when actually it's a young person inside an institution talking about young people. In a sort of object, almost objectifying way, in terms of, mm. at what point does that happen in people's journeys? At what point do we, as you know, as adults, start to talk differently about young people, as if that wasn't our journey?
1: I think that it, what it probably starts off, I think, really well intentioned. You know, this kind of almost like culturally, we really idolise youth. And so when we feel that we are no longer a part of that, we start to distance ourselves. So we say things like, oh, I'm getting old now. Oh, I'm no longer a young person. Yeah. But actually, by by doing what we think, and that's what I think is, you know, it's the right thing by sort of saying that's not my lived experience anymore. I understand where I sit within that. I understand that my privilege is changing, my experience is changing. But what that happens is it continues to put that distance in and just sort of means that there isn't... Um, you know, compassion and there isn't an understanding that you can still learn and you can still have proximity to youth and you can still, um, you know, listen yeah. to what young people have to say and appreciate their experience. It kind of just becomes, well, I wouldn't know because I'm old. Yeah,
0: so true. So true.
1: Yeah, they, for me, there's two parts of youth. That's the thing. I think there's the mind state, and that for me is this permanent state of curiosity, innovation, mm. uh, questioning the norm, being part, you know, refusing the status quo. That for me is an inherent right of youth and it's something that anybody can cultivate at any time. And then there's the lived experience of youth. And I do see that as part of the protected characteristics, i.e. young people do not get their fair share of power. Young people are um, disproportionately marginalised because of their age. They don't get access to money. They don't get access to the same jobs. They don't get access access to the same resources. And I think that we need to kind of decouple these two parts of youth.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine that any young people were involved in the development of a 6 month apprenticeship for about 3 or 4 pound an hour
1: right <laughs> but, exactly um,
0: could you give me maybe a bit more of a sense of how, how how do young people in Birmingham connect with beat freaks work so where's the first point of contact and then what's the you know give us maybe a story or a journey about how young people have connected with the company's work and and how that develops and evolves over time
1: yeah absolutely so yeah i think there's kind of uh, a few different entry points um i mean we we started on poetry jam which you mentioned which is um you know was very much an experiment to begin with which is if we if we kind of kick out the suits and boots out of the 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 business district that kind of occupy these beautiful independent coffee shops during the day and we give them back give that space back over for free to young people in the evening to come and kind of occupy that space, to take it to talk about the things that they care about mm. um, and kind of like reinvigorate that like 20, um, 19th century kind of coffee shop debate kind of space. If yeah. we bring that back, will people use it? Will people come? Will people care? And we started that, that was the very first thing that we did is how Beat Freaks was born back in 2013. And we've done it every month since.
0: That's amazing. It's like degentrification. <laughs>
1: Exactly, right, that's it, that's it. It's literally saying we're actually going to reclaim this space and we're going to do it in our way. And actually you started to – and it was amazing actually because now some of those young people will go back and work in that coffee shop during the day. You know, they're freelancers, they're working on their own businesses, they're hustling, and it's just amazing to see how actually you you make that space relevant for them. But that's kind of a whole other podcast, right? But this is (laughs) – like I think – I think what's amazing is by having a regular, consistent, reliable, open, free, democratic space where you turn up, you put your name down, I don't care who you are, whether you've been to the last 100 Poetry Jams, whether it's your first one, if you've got something to say, we've got this amount of spots, we will make it happen. A lot of people kind of come in through that as a platform and mostly they come first and listen. Yeah they come and listen to stories and then they might go home that night and write something and then the next time they have a go. And so I find that kind of Poetry Jam has been like the epicenter of of the movement of Beat Freaks, which essentially is... Young people having space to express themselves yeah. and be listened to and be heard, and it actually really is that exchange of be, of speaking up and being heard that's so important. It need you need both, mm. and you know from there, there's a, there's there's so many things that we kind of plug young people into. We run programs that develop them as producers. We run um, programs that develop them as entrepreneurs. We open our office space to give open up our own capital, giving people a chance to to work in warm, free, safe spaces. We work with massive brands like. At Google, Lush, to run uh, projects and campaigns that get these young people to use their talents in a way that um, helps to create culture and create um, new ideas and new communities and that also improves that business and changes that business as a result so that that business sees the power of young people and innovation and starts to think about how they can be future-facing businesses by embracing the talent of young people. A really good example of this is someone who I'll call Z. Yeah. Um, and she, she, this was a couple of years ago now, but turned up at a poetry jam, was, um, didn't really know many people in Birmingham, had kind of recently moved to the city. Um, she was about 19. So it kind of, you know, in, in uni and turned up at poetry jam and just, I met her actually on the stairs as I was kind of like running somewhere to kind of deal with something. (laughs) And she was just sort of like, I've got something to say. And I was like, oh, welcome home. You're in the right place. Yeah, yeah. And this really, really, really simple exchange, you know, led to her. She shared on the mic that night. She met some people. Turns out that Z's a musician. She met some people, she started jamming with them. Yeah. Um, she started to get involved in projects. She became a producer with us. She then worked with a group of people and they put on a festival. Through that festival, she met like some of her like now best friends. Um, Throughout all of this, she kind of said, look, actually, I'm I am I really want to kind of work with you guys. And, and so she came and did some work experience with us. Turns out she's got these massive opinions for kind of, you know, how to change the world and how to change the system. Yeah. And so we kind of just started to give her more and more agency, more and more support, kind of un- underwriting her. And um, she came up with um, a bit of a research project um, to kind of ask our community kind of what they think about the city. Mm. That research project turned into Brum Youth Trends, which has turned into National Youth Trends. And so now, you know, our last piece of research, we asked 2,000 people across the UK, you know, what do you think about how it is to live and work as a young person? And we've got that out to politicians, to major brands, to institutions, you know. And that really came from... And this is where I say it's important to acknowledge you and your power. You know, we have built together. Z has built up her agency, her voice, her confidence, her networks, And has now, and she's, you know, she's um, worked with us for a few years and has just moved into a big job and is on boards and is just doing incredible work. So she's built up her capital Mm. and her agency Mm. and we have done the same. And the point is that not enough institutions acknowledge that they talk about helping young people as Mm. just this purely altruistic thing. And it's not you gain from that experience. And I think what's really important is that you talk about how those things interweave
0: it's a really great example and i it might be interesting if you could talk a bit more about some of the kind of values that from your perspective sit at the heart of that because i think they are as you're saying i think they are very different to organizational values which i think Mm. can tend to be again i always find it very interesting talking about the kind of personal and the organizational and that transition that people go through when they you know you go as an individual with your own set of values, your own set yeah. of ideas, your own set of how the world works, and then you go and sort of work inside an organisation, it doesn't matter what age you are, whenever you do that, you sort of start to kind of recognise that there are there are organisational codes of behaviour and then people start yeah. to behave in quite different ways. And it seems to me that one of the things that you do within your work is actually... Augment the individual and and actually encourage people to, as you did with Z, explain and explore themselves and what they think and grow their ideas, rather than what organisations tend to do is to have this sort of um, more corporate sense of what you know mm-hmm. what it what does the organisation think. Yeah. But I would love to hear more about yeah what some of the kind of I guess values and uh, and principles that you feel infuse Beat Freaks' work that enables that kind of generosity to come out.
1: So we we talk a lot in Beat Freaks about uh, build the thing that builds more things. Yeah. Uh, being really super interested in the concept of platform working and how you can, and this comes back to our, our thing about kind of young people getting powers and reconceptualising powers, how could you create something that allows other things to grow from its back Mm. from its sides from its roots from its ceiling you know how do you create something that is generative yeah how are we doing this in a way that allows other people to build from it or that opens something so that other people can think about their own practice or their own work or their own selves from it we also think a lot about you know, non-Western philosophies for business. So stuff like seventh generation stewardship, how are you making decisions now that will impact seven generations into the future? Right. With, with what I really want to know is that seven generations into the future, They've rebuilt or they've built this incredible arts ecology, cultural ecology, and that Beat Freaks was one of the things that helped them to do that. Like there was something that we did that opened up more space for the next thing, and then that thing opened up more space for the next thing. And so it's kind of, yeah, we're really interested in this kind of like generative model of working and how you can create more from less. And I think that for me this ties in so well to the conversation that's happening right now in terms of, you know, the arts bailout and, like, what the future is. How are we getting more to more people and distributing in a more decentralised way. Yeah. You asked about values and kind of how we work. Yeah. One of the main things we're, we're, we talk a lot about is institutions of the future. And we talk about that as an almost oxymoron, right? Like, I don't think institutions will work and operate in the same way in the future. Mm. And I don't think that they should. Mm. I think that we're, um, we're kind of in a bit of an institutional crisis at the moment with how things are run, how things are sustained, how people trust them. And so I'm just interested in how we're making sure that we're not just going to recover back to the same place, Mm. but we are actually, we're moving to a reset. Like we're thinking about how do we deliberately and purposefully shrink parts so that other parts can grow? Mm. How do we deliberately and purposefully move resources around so that more people can extract more value out of that?
0: What you've been talking about makes so much sense to me because the idea of building the thing that builds things is mm. to me a kind of profoundly inclusive idea because it's uh, it's generous and it's inclusive because it's about mm. here's a platform or here's a framework or here's a network or um, here's some money or, you know, and, and what yeah. is the thing that you want to make and create and build? And, and and maybe we can work together on that and we'll learn from each other and we'll support you to make what you want to create and and we will learn and benefit from that too and that seems to me mm-hmm. an incredibly profoundly generous um uh, partnership, whereas actually the whole kind of structure within most cultural organisations is to build the thing that we want to build. So, And yeah. that usually means build the thing that the artistic director wants to build or indeed one mm-hmm. of the kind of artistic creative team has decided want to build. And it's still an invitation. People are invited to come in and join and yeah, build yeah. and create and make that thing. But ultimately, for me, that's one of the things that makes the sector so... Um, its track record on inclusion so piss poor, because actually, Mm -hmm. inevitably, if you've got a group of artistic directors and cultural leaders that are, you know, come from pretty narrow demographic, and and the structure of the invitation is to build what we are building, then inevitably mm-hmm. what comes with that is a whole set of codes and languages and ways of behaviour in building that yep. thing which are exclusive, yeah. which, you know, which will which yeah. will favour people who are more like that individual <laughs> who's made that invitation. Yeah. But I suppose I'm also asking, do you feel like, as well as institutional change, which I feel Beat Freaks is a brilliant example of, do you think there will also be change coming from individuals and from young people themselves who will just start to ignore those invitations from bigger institutions?
1: A hundred percent. I I really feel strongly that the power balance is shifting. I think that where and actually what you just said is 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 bang on. And I'd take it even one step further, which is they institutions say we want to build our thing, mm-hmm. and if you want to build something, you need to come to us. Yeah, because. It's enshrined in the business model that then that company, that institution is needed and is relevant and will get more money and more support because then they're the gatekeeper. They're the ones that are going to keep going out and reaching and placating all of these people that want to build these other little things. And so it kind of just keeps cycling back and strengthening the institution's position and keeping the smaller organisation or the individual in this kind of hands out, please, could you give me something Um, You know, I've got this thing. And I think what what is changing is, you know, this almost arrogance of institutions that you will want to work with us. I think that that's changing now. And young people are asking. You see it. You see it. You know, Twitter is a perfect melting pot for this. You know, people being called out all the time. But it's almost like you tell me why I should work with you. Mm. People are going to say, how did you how how did you treat your artists and staff during the pandemic? Mm. What did you do for Black Lives Matter? after the murder of George Floyd, people are going to ask these questions mm. and want institutions to pitch to them why they should work with them, not the other way around. Mm. And I know that sounds, it maybe feels nuanced, like it feels like a small shift, but I think it's a mighty one because I think when the desire and the need changes and that power dynamic changes, I think that's where we just need to make sure that resources and decisions kind of flow behind that. But I think it's a it's it's a big shift. I think that, the desire and the almost like, yeah, the fetishization of these big names, these big institutions. It's it's no longer there, or at least I think it's yeah. it's dissolving yeah. within some groups of young people. And
0: I, I, I I'm so excited to hear that, and I've heard that from other people, and I'm I just uh, it makes me really optimistic because I yeah. don't see the structural shift happening. But if we flip it and talk about the structural shift, and uh, you know maybe it's a, you know we talk about this 1.57 billion that. Oliver Dowden has said, is for preserving cultural institutions. If we, uh, or indeed we just look at kind of Arts Council funding or indeed other sort of um, sort of structural uh, issues which sort of set the tone, frame and power dynamics of the sector, are there things that you would want to change and you would want to see change over the coming, well, months <laughs> slash, yeah. slash yeah. 10 years? How could those structures change in order that there are more Companies that build the thing that builds things in yeah. the future
1: absolutely i I really want to see thirty year plans of decentralization from these institutions. I think you know the more radical end of me is like mm. let's just like completely restart yeah. <laughs> let's just yeah. you know get new people in and let's just but also you know the pragmatic side of me says. And this is the thing. I think our politics and our si- our systems are so set up to be so short termist that we're constantly just thinking in this like three to four year run. Our business plans run in that way. Our, um, you know, political system runs in that way. I want to see a longer term decentralization, um, you know, distribution plan from these organizations that shows how they will reduce their assets. They will share their capital. They will um, distribute their knowledge and their intelligence and they will actually make sure that the the stuff that they hoard and whether that's knowledge and information whether that's big buildings in prime prime spots I would want to see how this is going to be distributed back into the hands of people and and this is the thing like we you know as much as we were just saying there and getting really excited about you know the the breakdown in trust with institutions I also as I say it I feel the leaders dig their feet in Mm. dig their claws in Mm. and feel afraid of what we're talking about and that change that's coming and I think You know, these leaders, these organisations, knowing that they can bring this roadmap, put this roadmap into place that does that in a way that holds space for everything and everyone, Mm. I think that that is such... It's a radical model, but that is also practical and pragmatic right like it gives people time and space to think about how this stuff happens and how this how we get there sort of longer term mm. so i think i would want to see that i would want to see policy kind of yeah enshrining within this money that if if x percentage goes to a big organization what percentage of that needs to be distributed in funds directly to smaller organizations or um, yeah. or individuals i think that's a really simple thing yeah. that we can do yeah. I feel that there's a divorce between all the conversations we're having around equity, diversity, inclusion, all the things that the pandemic's support up, all the things that Black Lives Matter are pushing forward. There's a divorce from that and then how we're going to recover and reset mm-hmm. the arts. Mm-hmm. They are not weaved and knitted together and they're part of the same problem. Yeah. So like, are we just going to go back to the same thing or are we actually looking about how we move forward? I'm yeah. um, you know, not an economist, so <laughs> I can't, I can't like balance the sheet, but I can. I think that there are a lot of people that have ideas and have provocations that I don't think are being spoken to during this period while all these plans are being put together. And that's something that annoys me.
0: Just listening to you talk, then, one of my big frustrations about the whole process with the 1.57 billion, is that for me, whilst it's something to celebrate and whilst you can completely see that a lot of people have worked very long days and long nights to lobby and to make that happen, I would love there to be a freedom of information request to DCMS to find out the list of people that Oliver Dowden met in the last six weeks, eight weeks. And I would bet on the fact that he only met... Basically, people who run very large institutions. He yeah. probably yeah. also only met largely white people. I wouldn't be surprised if he only met largely men. Um, mm-hmm. I might be wrong. That might be complete, and maybe yeah. he could, if he's listening to this episode, he could tell us that that I'm <laughs> that I'm I'm wrong. But the fact is, is that. I don't doubt that some of those cultural leaders who run those cultural organisations probably said in good faith to Oliver Dowden, look, there's a wider ecology here. Look, you know, we need to think about inclusion. We need to think about X, Y, Z. But everything they said doesn't really matter because actually he has given one point five seven billion to quote him, to preserve cultural institutions. And so that money is going to go to those cultural institutions. The Arts Council is hurriedly running around saying, well, how do we support individuals? Oh, well, let's sort of uh, prioritise lottery cash for them coming from the lottery, which is going to be an absolutely minuscule proportion compared to the money that will go to those larger organisations. And and they do have those old-fashioned business models exactly like you've described, which tend Mm. to which are sort of selfish business models they focus on the organization and the company and the generation and development of its own brand they're not the build the thing that builds things um Mm. that you're talking about and that beat freaks so brilliantly exemplifies and i part of me thinks fuck it (laughs) let's just get on with our work and let's keep Mm. progressing positively with this co-creative practice which i feel is is growing but part of me also thinks we've got to do something about that 1.57 billion we've got to there's got to exactly like you're saying you know there's got to be some kind of some holding people to account well if you if you're going to receive x amount then what's the percentage just like you just said that goes to other companies or or actually what how are you going to restructure and reorganize your company this i guess leads to a question i would love to ask you about um, I'm a bit of a structured junkie in a way, just because um, structure means nothing unless the values are right. But at the same time, um, I feel like if the structure is wrong, exactly like you described, then everything just snaps back to how it was before. But, yeah, in terms of the structure within Beat Freaks, are there particular things that you're proud of within the company looking back over the last seven years that you feel, you know, if you're a director of a large cultural institution right now, you could look at that structural shift and go, that's what we need to do.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I really feel like it could it could be summarised as building in the open. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said in vulnerable leadership, and something to be said in building in the creating a culture where you build in the open, which is to say, not just okay, we're doing this, and this is the impact it's had, which which is kind of that kind of more, um, you know failing forward and like, you know, showing your failures and things like that, but actually showing the thinking behind making the decisions to build and making those, you know, those kind of fork moments in an organization where it's like, we could go this way, we could go this way. I don't actually think either of them are right or wrong. They're just what we have, what we are going to do right now with the information that we have available to us. And it's okay that we change our minds and it's okay that we got that thing wrong because you can see a journey and a process. And that's what you've just described about our blog. I mean, as I've been thinking about growth from the start of Beat Freaks and and bearing in mind, you know, we're kind of a different beast to the types of organizations that we're talking about. But as Beat Freaks has grown and as as I've grown as an entrepreneur and social entrepreneur and thinking about what I want to do, you know, we've tried to conceptualise growth in different ways. So at at one point we split out into a collective because we wanted different companies that could grow at their own rates and sizes and not feel like they had to kind of be taken in the direction of the other part. And then actually we realised there was an overarching mission to all of that. And so it just became very heavy administratively. People didn't really understand what we were doing. And actually we built out in the open a bit too much. And some people just didn't really care (laughs) about whether that thing was called that thing. They just cared about that they turned up to poetry and it felt good so we've kind of also had to go okay we can put that in the open for the people that want to find it but actually we don't always have to be driving a comms and a narrative on the on the decision that we're making so i know that sounds almost counter to what i'm saying but i think putting stuff out there sharing it in a way that's vulnerable that says actually, if we want honest conversations, they won't always be neat conversations. Yeah. They won't all be polished. You know, so the, this is kind of how we're doing things, and that we open constant invites back into that conversation as opposed to here's one closed part of our strategy yeah. that we're having consultation yeah. Yeah. on. Yeah. Like, as much as Beat Freaks is a is a company that I run, I own, it's open always for it to be morphed and shaped by the people it's trying to serve,
0: right? And doesn't building in the open as well, even if you go this way, ah, we, ah you're, you're saying that, okay, let's go this way, oh, you're saying that, let's, and you know, even if it leads to constant change, because one of the criticisms yeah. of Batsy was always that, you know, everything's changing all the time, everything's changing too much. And it was right, it was, it was over mm. it was overcomplicated, it was always changing. But the profound thing that perhaps people didn't talk about, which... it when you are talking about that shifting practice, at beat freaks is that that change because that change is open and caused by the people you are working with. Yeah. it means those people feel involved. Those people feel agency. Exactly. They feel they they're writing the story of that company. They are involved in that process. Whereas if you release a strategy to consultation and then you withdraw that consultation and then rewrite the strategy, it's yeah. it's a it's a much more kind of closed corporate process it's the the power and the control and the agency if you like remains very much with the you know the hierarchy of the organization whereas actually if you do that process in the open however messy however many changes and turns you get however much you know maybe too much change that creates but the the thing that we don't talk about is the fact that that very thing means that people are feeling like they are authoring that change and that means that people feel connected and yeah i don't know do you know does that make any sense
1: it, it makes so much sense. And I think the thing with that is what we're talking about is often changing the how, right? The programs or the, the way that that thing is done or who who leads it or whatever. But what it's strengthening consistently is the why. Yeah. And and actually you need to shift and play with the how to get a re- really clear on the why. I feel like seven years in, we're clearer on what we were trying to do in the first place. Mm. Obviously we've changed, times have changed. You know, people have changed, markets changed, blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's constantly almost going back to as well, what are the founding principles? What's the new information that we have now? What have we learned along the way? And all the way through, what is the why? What is the why? What is the why? And so, yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think, I think change is, um, the, the problem that we have in our, in in the arts and culture sector is that it's where that comes from. It's where where, where you're changing that to jump through the hoop for funders. you're changing that because you feel that you need to perform then that's then that's a different story right but where it comes from people and from learning it can only ever be a good thing
0: Mm -hmm. you recently hit the headlines when you handed back your british empire medal which you'd received for work you i read that you said that if this is power if this is validation then i don't want it and i just wonder whether you've had any reflections on? I mean, I mean, I know that the entire Beat Freaks mission is around thinking about inclusion. But again, when we look at the rest of the cultural sector and the sector really, really struggles with inclusion and I just wonder whether, yeah, what, what, if you have any thoughts about how you think that the sector needs to change.
1: Yeah, I think that I, think that I want to look back on this time without feeling that it was wasted. And I don't say that flippantly because it's been an awful time mm. for a lot of people. Mm. What I mean is this thing around new normal, this thing around the great reset, this thing around, you know, actually having the time and space to um, to do things differently. I don't want to feel that we just, and you used the, the words that earlier around kind of just that we preserved, that we enshrined, that actually we dug deeper in mm-hmm. to where we are. I don't want to feel that we've moved backwards in the work around inclusion and so i think that it also means that we need to have much more explicit and bold conversations about what that means about our makeup of our boards and 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 exec positions and it is going to need some courageous leadership from people and this is why i was saying earlier about having that kind of longer plan that kind of taking a bit more of a wider view on these things. Essentially, if we want more people of colour in our um, exec rooms, we're going to have to get more white people to budge up. Yeah. Like, we, we, I just don't see why we're not having the conversation at that level. The focus it always seems to be on we want to get more people in. Yeah. But to do that, unless we're going to create two... CEOs and two ADs and two... Yeah. <laughs> unless we're going to double these things up and make more space at the table, then someone is going to have to move. And I don't say that with any disrespect to anybody because and um, this is the thing I hold you know, great compassion that we're all just trying to do our bit in the world. Yeah. But we have to understand that we're going to have to de-platform ourselves. And that was the work that I was doing around the BM. And arguably there is way more powerful and influential people that should have done that work before I did, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I feel that that was my bit in that, my bit in modeling that. And I want to see more people de-platform themselves. Yeah. And and so that would be the first thing. I think, yeah, that thing around more explicit conversations. And and what I mean by that is more complete Conversation. So if we want this, well, then what does that mean? And who is actually going to, you know, volunteer to have those kinds of conversations, you know, things around. With the creative case, you know, I want to see there being repercussions then if people aren't achieving the goals that they've laid out. So I think more policy that doesn't just protect the way that things are, but that encourages and moves us to the way that we want, where we want things to be. Mm,
0: That is brilliant. That's really brilliant. I wanted to ask you about uh, one particular question about just one thing that you have within your company's work, which is a co-creators agreement. This is a bit geeky. <laughs> this is really geeky. Yeah. But I would just love to know um a bit more about that co-creators agreement and how you deploy it, how it gets used, what is it, what does it mean? Because I think, again, for companies and artists and producers and makers that are thinking about co-creation, it's uh, you know, it's it's a mystery to some people. Some people have been doing it mm. for 40 years. But it would just be lovely to hear about a little bit more about yeah your your beat for co creators agreement and how it works.
1: It was a way of capturing conversations that happened as part of projects quite organically mm. by by the nature of the type of work we were trying to do, which is to make people feel that they had um, agency to shape the way the project moved, that they were valued and recognised for the things that they put in, um, and that they had a chance to to change its not just its outcome, but the the process to get there. So I think basically we didn't sit down to write the agreement. The agreement came out of a set of behaviours and and ways of working. And I think we've kind of moved even further beyond that now, because even as you said that, I was like, I don't think that that's one thing that we now employ in our projects as a template. Mm. I think it's much more of a, a, you know, a model of practice. And that for me is, I think that co-creation is now an amazing big banner of stuff and i think there's so many different ways of co-creating underneath that banner yeah. and i think we're, we try to be a lot more explicit about what that means for things like ip what does that mean yeah. for um ideas what does that mean for your own recognition as an individual as part of a collective so for me the co-creators agreement is about making the Implicit, explicit, mm, mm, as much as you can, mm. so that everybody can participate and be a part of shaping the way that that goes. But I think too often this is a big pet peeve of mine around the concept of like a flat structure. Mm. Um, I'm slightly veering off here, but to make the no, point, no, no,
0: this is great.
1: <laughs> I think when people talk about a flat structure, what they mean is there's some there's some hidden hierarchies, there's some hidden ways yes. of working. Yes. That we're just not actually going to acknowledge because we're also like forward-thinking and inclusive. Yes. And it bothers me because I think people would and, and all the research I've seen, and I'm very ready to be told otherwise, but everything that I've seen says people respond much better to hierarchy and network. Yeah. And it's the combination of the two that's really powerful. And so with I don't see why we don't extend that to our ways of working with communities and people.
0: Yeah.
1: Kind of our organization way of working we try and treat young people as almost as an extension of our company.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of just making the implicit explicit in that I think, again, mm. within the cultural sector, a sector of festering hierarchies, we're so bad at talking about them. I, I always, I was always amazed how much easier it made things in meetings when I would say to people, because we, we developed this idea of project working, which was trying to shake up the kind of departmental siloed way of working in an organization. Mm. So that basically you would organize your work by what you were trying to do rather than organize your work via the functions nice. of an organisation. And and it was a kind of more open, flatter structure. But I always, when, you, when I said that, I very quickly learned that I also had to say, but I'm the boss. There is a, strict, yeah. there is a clear and strict hierarchy here, but these are the terms yeah. and rules of project working which try to mess with that hierarchy and, and play around yes. with it in different ways. And I love that idea you're describing about making the implicit explicit. I feel like there are so many hidden things this goes back to inclusion too around the kind of coded language and behaviors of organizations and it's not that as a sector we should be um always afraid of those hierarchies or those codes of behavior the key thing is the first thing is to just open them out and admit them and talk about them and then that's the very first step towards then things changing um, and, and shifting so yeah w- what you're saying makes great sense in terms of IP what does that mean how do you do de- I mean I'm sure you deal with it probably in lots of different ways in different projects but but again that's something that I feel as a sector we're again not very good at supporting and enabling the individual to retain IP I just wonder how you, how you mm-hmm. deal with that because you've got a, a, an amazing complexity of that in terms of the number of projects that young people yeah. are developing and I'd be really interested to hear how you deal with that
1: I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's very much, and and actually uh, us kind of, you know, sitting between working kind of commercially and also kind of working in the kind of third sector space has been really helpful because I think we just borrow things from each side Mm. and Mm. kind of help to kind of cross fertilize that. So weirdly, I think, yeah, IP isn't talked about enough in kind of the art space Mm. Whereas kind of it's it's a more accepted and natural question when you're working in kind of a, a, a commercial setting. I mean, often because it's expected the bigger company will keep the IP, right, yeah. but at least it's kind of, but it, but it's spoken about and there's no shame around that. And I think that for me is always the first thing is let's talk about if you're coming into this room, what are you coming into this room? Like, especially for like co-creation sessions where it's around co-designing ideas, yeah. What's going to happen? What? Let's work backwards from what's going to happen yeah. at the end of these. So is, is this an idea that you're being paid to come and support and therefore everything you're doing, you're giving in a generous spirit? Yeah. Will you get recognition for that? Will you be named as a co-creator or actually working as an extension of our company? Is our company working as an extension and being white labeled for another company? Yeah. And so this is why I go back. I don't, for me, there's no pure ideological yeah stance on IP at all, actually at all, because I also think that ideas are constantly made better by other people. But knowing that often it's the most uh, vulnerable, the most marginalised, the quietest voice, I mean, that kind of in the broadest sense, it's those people who are often the most exploited by people taking their ideas. Then I think that, you know, you have, especially for us as the intermediary, we just have to make sure we're being explicit and giving people the tools to understand the different ways that that could work for them yeah we we think about it and we interrogate it ourselves not perfectly but but we do it's it's, it's part of our practice to ask those questions yeah. and then you know we we make sure that that becomes a norm within young people so that then when they go and work with other people they're asking those kinds of questions and i think that's that's a really great way of at least beginning to think about ip and and ownership
0: that's so brilliant thank you yeah i always used to say and still do in my favorite line from a pop song is uh from bananarama and Funboy three it's the it's not what you do it's the way that you do it um exactly <laughs> because of the fact that exactly what you're saying there is no right answer on ip but the way that you go about having that conversation the way that you uncover all elements of that conversation the way that you uncover yeah. people's roles within the work that you are going to do and that you might do and and that you have to keep revisiting process, you know, potentially in an hourly or daily or weekly or monthly or whatever it is way in order that nothing ever becomes cloudy or misunderstood. And I feel like, yeah, as organisations, if we spent so much more time thinking about the way we did stuff rather than what it is we're trying to do, we would be so much better at including people at supporting people at empowering people at, at not falling into the kind of trips uh, and hazards of of kind of hierarchical corporate thinking which which does tend to yes kind of cover those things up often when you talked about z earlier and you said there was that moment on the stairs i've got to say something the fact that people mm. can feel in any moment that they have something to say and that they can say it and that actually it is a kind of moral imperative and for the health of the yeah. company and yeah. for the health of their collaborators that they do say it that that feels yes. like an incredibly important thing within cultural organizations going forward rather than i'm feeling like i'd I've got something to say, but I'm not going to say it because I understand that within this meeting, within this context, it's better not to say it because of X, Y, <laughs> X, Y, and Z. <laughs> yeah. And these, I could, they, I could just go on asking you questions for about three days. It's so great to hear from you. It's so great to hear more about, yeah, the kind of thinking behind the work that you're doing with Beat Freaks. And I, you know, I'm a passionate supporter and advocate, having found out particularly more about the way that you work now, how every. Village, town, and city needs a you know a cultural organisation that is is building the thing that builds things. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, yes. I I I think that's a great <laughs> note for the Arts Council for the cultural renewal task force, and indeed for as a criteria for the one point five seven billion quid that the, that is mm-hmm. going to be distributed. That, that should be a criteria. It's such a powerful thought. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. No, thank you so much. It's been. It's been amazing to just have a platform. It's been very cathartic, I'd say, actually, to just get to kind of process all of this. And um, yeah, just I can't wait to kind of listen to it, to what everyone else has got to say on, on these Culture Plan B podcasts as well. So thank you so much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this third episode of Culture Plan B. My thanks to Anissa Moradadi. If you want to find out more about the work of Beat Freaks, then visit www.beatfreaks.com. That's B-E-A-T-F-R-E-K-S. I highly recommend the blog pages of their website, including the excellent blogs by Anissa, which give a snapshot of her brilliant thinking over the past seven years. You can contact us at Culture Plan B with ideas for the podcast by emailing us at cultureplanb at gmail.com and do follow us on Instagram or Twitter for information on future episodes. This episode was researched and presented by David Jubb, the editors and sound mixers at Ian Dickinson and George Dennis. The music is from Don't Tell Me by Conrad Murray with Kate and Nate from BAC's Beatbox Academy. Communication support from Antonia Goddard with thanks to David Bell, for helping us to make the series more inclusive and accessible original artwork by John Borsa, and the producer and creator is Matthew Dunster not don't don't tell me how to live, don't tell me how